Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Tonic Discussions. Last week we discussed national divorce. Eric and I didn't participate. This week we're here. We're going to continue the discussion. We are lacking Luke and Grant, but Mark, John, and Daniel are all here. So we're going to continue the discussion and then maybe go on to some other topics that connect in one way or another. And with that said, let's go. Uh, John, you were saying something. Was I? Um... <laughs> Yeah, so uh, in the in the kind of pre-discussion, like we were, it, it, Mark brought up like kind of the parallel systems as um, a, a a way of avoiding the sort of like the political national divorce, right? Um, and the point that I was making is that in a sense, the U.S. already has two parallel systems right now. It has the the old constitutional order, and it's got the civil rights constitutional order which are completely incompatible with one another down to the level of fundamental philosophical premises. Um, and each side of this divide has a sort of religious attachment to their particular like, preferred constitution um, and tends to pay lip service to the other side. I mean, there's, it's, it's not a pure divide, right? I mean, like you'll, you'll find like most red state uh, MAGA types will will still say like, oh, the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or whatever, you know, like there's still that kind of like they'll, they'll pay lip service in that way. Um, and then the, the blue side, like, they'll still pay lip service, of course, to the original uh, U.S. Constitution. But the, the deeper allegiances are to um, to those those two documents and that incompatibility between them is a source uh the primary source i think of the almost re religious struggle which is emerging um and I, this is increasingly being reflected in geographic boundaries too so you know especially post coronavirus uh we've seen this internal migration where people are fleeing the blue states and going to the red states and initially people were quite worried that this would turn, you know, Texas and Florida into like purple and then blue states, but the opposite seems to have happened. They've actually become uh, more deeply red as that migration has gone on. So um, now people are starting to think, okay, what's actually happening is that the red state voters uh, or, the, or the red voters in the blue states are abandoning the blue states and moving into red states. Um, so you're, you're seeing a, uh, the, the, the political divide become a geographical divide, which probably does not bode well for the long-term political stability because you know you have now increasingly two like you, you you have geographically distinct regions with very culturally and politically distinct populations who have fundamentally incompatible views about the how the uh, the union should be set up. And we're seeing that, of course, replicated in the digital sphere as well. So we were also talking about, um, like, during the, the pre-discussion, we were talking about uh, um, the kind of fragmentation of the internet into all of these walled gardens, these little fiefdoms that are sort of separated off from them. Uh, and uh, so, for instance, Twitter, right? Twitter, for the longest time, was just like the public town square. Um, and now it's increasingly becoming the red town square. It's just the biggest version of Gab and 
uh, you know, true social. And at the same time, Meta just came out with Threads as a Twitter competitor, which apparently already has 100 million users because they just imported everyone from Instagram. And um, that's seeing very enthusiastic uptake from uh, Democratic politicians and celebrities and so on. So it looks very likely that Threads ends up becoming effectively the blue Twitter. So, you know, we're going to have these kind of like separate noetic zones inhabited by the separate populations who are going to have to a certain degree geographic separation from one another um, and are going to be inhabiting completely distinct media and influence ecosystems, which, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't see how, I don't see how you, you heal that divide. It seems that they just end up going further and further from one another as time goes on. Um, and eventually you either have to have political separation or uh, one hell of a power struggle. So with that, uh, um, anyone? If I could yeah. jump yeah, in for just a second. Um, I think it's worth noting that uh, the left in America has forsaken Martin Luther King. Like I wouldn't say that he's actually become the, uh, you know, the, the founding document of the left, because I mean, they're very like much a, a skin color is the only thing that matters. What's that? That's 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 a very conservative talking point, right? Um, it's it's sort of the, the, the Democrats are the real racists, or uh, like I, well, we're the real defenders of of the civil rights. Uh, but I'm, I'm not um, saying the civil rights in general. I'm saying that Martin Luther King in particular. Uh, was very keen on, you know, all of his speaking points are, you know, how to merit, you know, not not the color of your skin, content of your character, you know, your skills, you know, being treated, judged by merit as opposed to the modern left, which is saying, you know, merit is in of itself not a thing. And so we should be um, hiring only on skin color, that kind of deal. I, I, I just think we don't we don't want to cede Martin Luther King Jr. to the left. They've they've gone way past that. You know, and they're straight up saying, I, 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 I don't know. I would, I would, to me, it, it's always kind of looked like he was just kind of like the face that was there to appeal to the white liberal. Um, you know, like the, the kid glove wrapped around the steel fist of Malcolm X. Uh, you can deal with the reasonable Martin Luther King Jr., or you can deal with the unreasonable Malcolm X, right? But they were sort of, they were sort of like, you know, two parts of the same thing. And um, the, the deference with which Americans have been trained to regard Martin Luther King Jr., the uh, supposed reverend, supposed doctor, plagiarist, and so on, um, communist operative, according to some, uh, philanderer, whoremonger, and, and, and et cetera. Uh, this deference is to a large degree what is actually, it's like an, an emotional protection for the civil rights regime because it, it sort of, gets the red side to kind of pull its punches all the time because they don't want to offend the memory of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Well, so um, I, think, I think there's a different way of looking at that, though. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I don't want him as a son-in-law, but especially because he'd be a shambling corpse, and that would be horrifying at Thanksgiving. But uh, even still, if you look at like the civil rights legislation and like bureaucracy and like the edifice that came out of that, right? It's very, very different in function and the reality of how it works from what he preached. And so on the one hand, well, I think you're right in a lot of ways that he was the, you know, the more palatable face for the, um, the leftist view. 
people liked the palatable face, but what the palatable face was is not what people got, and it's certainly not what they're getting now and what they're pushing now. You see what I mean? So it's sort of like saying, you know, like, hey, this guy was nice, but this isn't anything like you. Let's let's separate those two a little bit. Um, instead of saying that he was what the left was, like, no, no, he was the good face. We everybody was okay with what he was selling for the most part. What actually got sold or purchased and what is being used now is something very, very different. And I think that's useful. I, I, I saw I sorry, I saw Harrison's hand up, but I just want to interject something very quickly and then hopefully Harrison could give us his take. Uh, I think what we're really talking about, though, is not palatable, unpalatable, but two different stories with two different characters. And so those stories, you need like, in other words, people are struggling to find a national story as they always are, a tribal story, a story that unifies and makes things coherent so that they can look back and say, here's- And it's it's, it's 1776 and 1619, right? Where the 1619 story is is the one that, that, that sort of like, you know, it goes from 1619 through, somehow through the Holocaust camps and then like, you know, it flowers in like 1964 with the Civil Rights Act and everything. Uh, and then the other story. It's more ancient than that. It's more ancient than that. It's more ancient than America. The two stories, the two stories can be drawn back to, well, I, I would say the fall of Satan versus the dominion of God. Like these are ancient beyond belief. Like the idea of what kind of a story you're going to use as the foundation for whatever your, your civilization is. And I think that in the 60s, and particularly, like they, that was unstable. People weren't sure what kind of story they wanted to, you know, you had people flocking to one story on one hand with its own cast of characters and another story on the other hand with another cast of characters, and they were in conflict. And now I think we've seen the result of who won, which story won. That's what we're living with today. And let me just hand that off to Harrison. Sorry, man. I just wanted to jump in there real quick. Well, I wanted to... I wanted to sidestep this this uh, this whole part of the conversation and go back to what John was saying about the this kind of like geographical and digital divide that is forming, and I think this is almost even a like it will it will have a part to play in how things actually play out and the 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 dynamics and the structure of whatever conflict plays out over the next ten years. But in a sense, it's kind of a a secondary issue in the sense that regardless of what happens, there are other things that are that are going to take place. So let's just say that for whatever reason, there is this, well, just imagine a very rapid and kind of definitive national divorce in the sense of we get people moving. So we get higher concentrations and a higher polarization between different geographical regions. And let's just say that that even manifests itself politically in the, you know, a, a division into two two you know two versions of the united states or or more than that 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 in itself that's kind of the that's kind of just the clothes that are that are going to be worn because those states those new states or those existing states that just in their new new form they're still going to have to deal with the the issues that are kind of the you know i'll go back to peter turchin the kind of structural demographic issues that are that are contributing to the the, the dynamics that we're seeing. So for instance, we're gonna get, let's say the, the red country and the blue country, and they're each going to have their elite overproduction. They're each going to have too many elite aspirants. This is, so even within a, a blue country, 
you're going to have the same uh that you're going well not necessarily it's not going to manifest exactly the same it won't be the same kind of political struggle but you're still going to have political struggles and there's and it, and that is going to come to a head and the only way like the or the not the only way but the the most common way no what needs to, what needs to happen and what has always happened is there needs to be a reduction in the numbers of of this like overeducated elite aspirant class and whether that happens through like historically disease death war or through just massive downward social mobility that's going to be the only thing that solves the problem that basically resets the resets the system so that it can start again and uh, and the 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 the, the symptoms can kind of cool down for, so that for the next uh, at least 50 years, there's going to be some uh, like a, a relative peace. And then if 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 things are, are managed um, well, we won't see a second civil war in, in, in the next 50 to 60 years. And then it might be 100 or 200 years before the next big, um, you know, the big breakup. But the even just even just the notion of this of this divorce, whether it's geographical or political or both, that in itself like it won't solve anything that will just be one of the things that happens as the as the problem gets worse until the actual solution um takes place which is one way or another a massive reduction in the you know the numbers of the the one percent to the ten percent it's like a lot of those people are going to have to lose a lot of money enter the the enter the lower class or the you know the, the dwindling middle class to kind of um repopulate that 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 entire demographic and historically that's usually a violent process and uh, some of them even if it isn't physically violent may perceive it as uh economically violent and that so that in itself even in, in a totally blue country or a totally red country is still going to play it play itself out one way or the other i just wanted to throw that out there when, so i so I I, I, nothing nothing ever stops everything uh, or so, solves everything, right? I mean, every solution is mm -hmm. causing problems, some problems. Um, but so I, to, I think Turchin's um, sort of elite structural analysis uh, is very relevant to precisely this red-blue divide. Um, the the red elites, in many ways, are the the kind of frustrated emerging elite that are being blocked from advancement um, by the kind of like overpopulated blue elite. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the things which is precisely one of the things which is generating all of the, the sort of cultural conflict in the first place. Um, I mean, you have like a lot of young guys, especially who are being prevented from uh, moving forward in their careers, being denied positions at universities, and like you all know the deal, right? And uh, some fraction of them are finding alternative means of uh, of generating influence and status for themselves, um, setting themselves up as a rival elite. And of course, they're very ill-disposed towards that kind of existing institutionalized institutional elite who are entirely blue. Um, so. Well, yeah. but there's I mean, also there's yeah. also blue like blue elite aspirants that can't get in because like the the whole thing about uh about the like Turchin's analysis of this is that there's a limited number no matter what your color you know your political color and 
despite the fact right, that the majority, right, right, the right. majority so like, of the full so, that are so blue, like, you so, still got a ton of blues so that a, want to get in of, on that. A, a lot of what people call a lot of what people call woke is essentially like a means of trying to regulate entry into the elite, um, which on the on the blue side they they sort of compete with one another to outwoke each other. It turns into a purity spiral. So like you know only the wokest can ascend. And then on the red side, it's like sort of the ones who like explicitly reject that and are just like they're, so they're not trying to join the existing elite so much as increasingly like talking about it. How do we become a counter elite and just replace them entirely? Exactly. So that's that's kind of the struggle that's going on there. Right? You know, some people trying to cl climb the existing greasy pole, and others being like, "Why don't we just build a fucking ladder?" Um, well, there's and there's two there's two ways that I can jump in there. Because I think on the one, I mean, want to build on what you're saying is that there's the question of what kind of elites a country has, right? So you know, at the moment we have one country, we have. Blue is the elite, right? You have to be more woke. That's how you get up the up the pole, like you're saying. Right? And so there's a lot of conflict around that. You re can reduce a lot of conflict by saying, yeah, those guys aren't on. You know, we break into red and blue. The red states say, yeah, these guys are no longer our elites. We have slightly different kinds of elites, but we like them better. Like they're, they're we they're elites for reasons that we can respect, right? You start moving and like have more towards that prestige. Exactly, of a dominance hierarchy, right? So that that's exactly. exactly. If you if you read um, so 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 last week, I just want to interject uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, to the audience and and you guys. If you didn't read Johann Kurtz's Teleocracy and Prestige, um, it is completely on point with this stuff. That's exactly what he's talking about. It's like how do we, from a practical perspective, build a rival elite that actually exists on like sort of meritorious. Uh, um principles it's it's good stuff okay but go go well, ahead and i want to say the other thing that's important to remember is that you actually can create more slots for elites whenever so in particular when you break up countries um you know the united states elites don't compete with the with canadian elites right like we each have our own presidents they're not fighting each other to become the uber president right implying implying canada has elites i <laughs> Technically, yes, they do. Are they good elites? Dear God, no. But you know, hey, they have they have people that are in power and uh, people listen to for some ungodly reason. But uh, but this is the thing, right? So as you as states merge and become larger single states, there's more spaces for people, but relative status goes down for everybody because there's still only one guy at the top, people below him, people below him, people below him, right? So if you have you know, if you think back to like post-Roman Empire, Western Europe breaks up. Now you have tons of little kingdoms. None of those kings have as much power as a provincial governor under Rome, but they also don't have anybody above them. And mm. so by relative status within that smaller group, they're much more important and they're much more focused on their immediate group and that kind of prestige slash dominance hierarchy. You see the same thing with like music after the advent of radio, you started getting national stars. Right. Whereas before, when you had, well, and even in the very early days of radio, when you only had local radio stations, you had many like, oh, this is the best band in town. And this is the second best band in town. And all oh, these are the guys that are musicians here. And maybe you hear of some like the local towns, but you didn't know what was going on the other side of the country. Once so, I so one way, what, 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 no one cares one about the best of, band in town. One, one way to kind of phrase that would be that um, from a strictly material basis, it's usually much better to be part of a much larger hierarchy uh but from uh 
from an emotional or psychological basis, at least as far as the elite go, it's, it's kind of better to be the chieftain of uh, a small tribe um, than it is to be like the village headman uh, in a large empire, even though the village yeah. headman has like a, a much better standard of living from a material basis. It's also it kind of a, it's kind of similar to the whole thing with like a Gini coefficients, right? How um, people's happiness uh, is more tied to their perceived relative level of wealth to others in their society than it is to kind of their absolute wealth level. So I mean, like, yeah. you can be yeah. you, you you can you can be just as happy as like some tribesman in Africa with like a fucking goat in a hut um, as you could be being like a, a middle class guy with like a house in the United States, but you know, the guy living in the trailer park, even though his standard of living is objectively far superior to that of the um, African tribesman with the goat, is probably not as happy and content with his life. Yeah. And then the important thing is you're better, to rule, we better, to, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason that line from Milton resonated. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, Better and, to and rule were, in hell than to serve in heaven. Yes. Go yeah. ahead. And let, let's tie this back to what we were talking about just a minute ago, though, too, with the idea of you have different elites that are, you know, closer to a um, prestige hierarchy than a dominance hierarchy, right? So it's not only your relative um, status that matters, but it's the people that have status and power over you. How much do you like them? Right. So, like, it's one of those things that's always bandied about whenever people complain about, um, economic inequality is nobody complains that big football stars make millions of dollars, right? People are like, oh, he's awesome. And in fact, they'll say, this guy's a great football player. Look how much money he makes, right? Like, we like that. We like that when we see people that we respect and we think deserve their money to have money. Elon Musk. Musk. Elon Musk. That we hate who are successful. Elon Musk. Case in in point, right? Like, you know, a few years ago, he's like, you know, Mr. Electric Vehicle and Solar Power. And like, you know, the the blue people are like, oh, we love Elon Musk. He's great. (laughs) And then like, you know, he starts like, well, being like, you know, modern day Elon. And suddenly, suddenly his billions of dollars are a problem, you know? Yeah. Or Donald Trump, yeah. or Donald Trump? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, and I and think this that's is also you break also, down when the, when the societies get smaller. It's much easier to match up. You know, who's in? Who are the elites? Are they elites I can respect? As it gets mm-hmm. bigger, you're kind of all stuck with that one size fits all problem. This this touches on something that I wrote about a while ago. Um, I can't I can't remember the name of the essay, uh, but it, it's something like. Um, national globalism versus global nationalism, something like that. Uh, But basically like the idea was like, so we have these elites, but they're not, they don't feel like our elites because they've essentially become their own tribe, right? Yeah. So like, you know, there was that that woman from the left, uh, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago now, who um, she made some statement you know, at, at the World Economic Forum to the effect that, like, oh, it's so wonderful that, you know, we're building all of this trust between our, our between ourselves, between the elites, you know, they actually call referring to themselves as that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can accomplish so much when we work together and this is just all great. But, you know, the, what's troubling, she says, is that in every single one of our countries, um, you know, so the more 
the, the closer we get together as an elite, like the, the more the people distrust us. But she was very confused and frightened by this. That was um, a fantastic quote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so revealing, right? But like, but it's also kind of obvious because like the more that happens, the more they are just their own tribe. And if they're not, if they're their own tribe, then they're not the elite of our tribe. There, there's some foreign tribe which is which is dominating us, right? And this, this is, um, this this kind of yeah. strikes, this, this strikes at like kind of like the right into the soul, you know? Because it, it, it's one thing to live in a, an autocratic system where at least like the nobility are the kind of the best of your own people, right? Like, um, I guess like to the American political imagination, that would be tyranny because it's an autocracy. But historically, like that is kind of, that's freedom. That is the definition of freedom is to be ruled by your own. And the definition of uh, servitude is to be ruled by another people, right? It, it, it actually, it isn't, yeah. Yeah, I see, you, I see you making a face here because you're, you're thinking like, but Adam Smith or something. I'm glad that you mentioned servitude. Uh, but like, I was going to bring you up. Yeah. But if you look, if you if you look at like what they would, what, what the struggles for freedom all through history were, yeah, were largely yeah, I, I think like I agree. national national liberation struggles, right? It was like you know we don't want to be dominated by this foreign empire. We don't really want to be dominated by this other tribe. We want to live according to our customs and our rules and our traditions, uh, and and be ruled by our own elite. Um, so. You know that, and so, so to tie that back to the discussion, of course, and this is you know another one of the issues is that the elite are not perceived by a large fraction of the population as having that kind of em emergent organic legitimacy, yeah. um, which yeah. Right. Uh, so and again, again, that sort of points towards fragmentation, right? Which might, which might not be because everyone sort of. So I think when everyone thinks of like national divorce, usually there's this like one of the, one of the arguments against it is it, it will say like, oh well, you know, where would you draw the border, right? Um, because you know, if you if you look at like voting patterns, like that's not obvious at all because it's kind of like a you know, rural red counties versus blue states and blue cities and you've got like blue cities in the middle of like red states and you know your 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 blue states or seas of red themselves with like little blue dots in them um but that i think might be looking at it entirely the wrong way it might not be sort of like a, a red blue divide it might be more like just a, a total fragmentation down into like you know state like city states and you know regional states uh, that maybe, and this is one of the things that I mentioned last week, I think, um, might not even play out as a formal breakdown in political unity. I could very easily see a situation where at a de facto level, the federal government is essentially rendered irrelevant to the lives of um, individual people but everyone still sort of continues paying lip service to membership in the union. But, you know, governors and mayors of the larger cities are pretty much just acting as their own local rulers doing whatever the fuck they want. Sort of like a, like a Holy Roman Empire situation, right? Where it's like, um, you know, on paper there's an emperor, but, you know, in practice, each little baron is doing whatever the fuck he pleases. Well, and really, that was the well, I, States I, uh, prior 1860 slash 
you know, sure. 14 or so. It would be, well, this is the thing. It would be a reversion to what America was intended to be from the beginning, basically. A revolution, um, you might say. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, <laughs> but it would also, it well, would also, to tie this back to, tie this back to the elite theory stuff, right? um, you, you would essentially have then form a myriad of tiny little elites, a myriad of tiny little hierarchies. All of which you can climb to the top of if, if you want. So, so now suddenly there's more space, there's more social space created in the political and and, and, and economic elite and such, right? Um, just spinning off that, well, I'm, I'm thinking more and, and like the, the 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 fragmentation of the internet actually into like all of these little walled gardens, kind of a similar thing, right? Uh, you know, you've got if you've got like one big platform everyone uses and there's only so much attention that can be directed towards the small number of like, you know, multi-million follower influencers. But if you've got like a hundred or thousand different platforms, people are fragmented among them. Each of those is going to have its own little hierarchy of influencers that it's possible to, to join uh, and climb up. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad uh, just to, just to return because, uh, it's been a while, but we, we were talking about the um, that fortunate uh, quote that we got from the from the WEF woman about trust. And it was fascinating to me. And the reason that was fascinating, and I haven't seen anybody talk about it yet, is that what is trust in a situation like that? When we look at the entire history of empire or of aristocracy or of anything that touches on the elites, what we know is palace intrigue. That's the actual story. The actual story is that the elites are constantly in secret conflict with each other. It's like, it's like real Game of Thrones type shit. You know what I mean? But really echoed throughout history. I'm, is not, the idea I'm not sure, of, uh, I, I'm not sure that's totally true, though. I'm not sure it's well, totally not true. Totally true. Well, let me that's, let me get it out first. That's true, me, that's, that's true in a lot of cases. That tends to be towards the end of the cycle. But, but, but. But trust, but the idea that trust that she senses, in other words, that there has been at least up until this time, a trust vacuum. In other words, she's addressing it. She's, this is a discomfort to them. The idea that they may be in league with people who have knives behind their back, which is not always the case, I agree, but is, is largely the case, or at least often the case. And so I think that, you know, and, and again, we're talking about global homo, we're talking about um, global fascism, the idea of large institutions, large mechanisms that are getting into bed with each other, um, that are making arrangements um, uh, behind the scenes. And that is, and, and the one thing that most of those uh, uh, mechanisms entail is that like, well, you know, like any sort of organization is going to need some element of trust and they're going to need to have some bedrock, some some principle by which they could say, I know I can trust you, Right. And oftentimes that principle is based in something, if an organization gets large enough, I think, and powerful enough, it's based in something that's not so great. It's based, in, it's based on, I know your secrets and you know mine. It's based on, I know where the bodies are buried or something along those lines. And so, you know, I think the unique moment that we're in, because I agree with you guys, that like the, the tendency is towards decentralization. I'm seeing it on multiple fronts. It's, it's happening. Um, they're, they are afraid of that uh, for obvious reasons. But I think that our project, part of the idea, like I said, like, okay, civil war, like what would civil war entail? Or a national divorce, you know, that's absent civil war. Well, a national divorce that's absent civil war would be mainly a information war 
on the one hand and an economic war on the other hand. And in both cases, when I was rereading um, Etienne de la Bossie's, uh discourse on voluntary servitude this morning uh, to prepare for this conversation. And like him, I believe that the idea is simply something along the lines of tune in, turn on and drop out in a new sort of a frame of mind where we say we could coordinate um, removing consent from various subsystems within society. If we could coordinate, we could say like, A, we, we figure out, okay, here's a test, here's how we know we can trust you. And B, I think part of that would be in the coordination of saying, hey, let's boycott Target tomorrow. You know, we saw the boycotts of Target or Bud Light. Hey, let's boycott this tomorrow. Hey, let's do that. Let's show strength in terms of saying that we, we can decide not to consent. We can decide not to participate in a, a large enough a number that it will hurt you. Not with bullets and bombs. It will hurt you. It will, it will, it will, it will knock the, the, the dirt from beneath your feet. And like, I think that, so that when I think about national divorce, I'm just sort of like, how about, you know, a national guma? How about like you go, you, you find people in the world, not just in the country, but in the world that are willing to say, hey, you know, we also dissent from this. Sorry, sorry. Maniacal a machine. Yeah. A national guma? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying like in the sense that like, okay, not a, not a, in other words, we can cheat rather than divorce, you know, and we could cheat with each other on a global scale. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like what's another a, what's a what's a guma? Uh guma, it's an Italian American uh slang <laughs> for like a, a kind of a a, a a second secret wife. That's oh, right. Oh, oh, I knew that. I knew that. You never I heard, heard Guma? Uh, I, I, I heard that the first time on the Sopranos, like which I watched. Okay, thing. yeah. <laughs> Like a side piece. I don't know. But I'm saying if like like the side piece could be global, like in other words, we all say like we all say we coordinate our actions along again, blockchain or whatever kind of methods we can find for Mac to maximize privacy along um, uh, uh, private networks um, to be able to coordinate. Uh, it would be way better. I mean, like what I see all the time is provocation. Like when I see I saw Biden's uh, horrible speech that he did in Independence Hall that time and all he and all he did was just pro provoke, provoke, provoke. What they what they see is that ancient strategy. They say they, they look at and they say, like, we got it. We got to get rid of them now. Well, they're still disorganized. Well, they're still confused. Whether well, they're still they still lack any sort of um, unifying uh, spirit or symbol or, or or coordinated strategy. Like, so they want to provoke all of these little actions. They want to provoke all of these, um, foment all of these uh, pointless uh, actions, these that will just allow them to wrap their tentacles around the thing even harder. And I'm like, well, no, what we should be doing now is basically saying, hey, how do we, how do we involve ourselves? How do we disentangle ourselves from them? Not just at a national level, I think, at a global level to some degree. Uh, how do we disentangle ourselves from them and like ignore them until they 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 sort of fall apart on their own? Um, and Harrison, go ahead. Sorry, man. Well, no, th that was all good. I wanted to come back to something you you were talking about just a couple of minutes before that on the issue of trust. And I think that I think another angle of looking at that has to be very granular, like in the actual experiences of of people in their everyday lives, because I think that despite kind of the the political 
uh, scheming and backstabbing and stuff that goes on, I think a lot of the what contributes to um, to that trust goes back to goes back in a sense to what John was saying about um, about merit and like what a merit what a real meritocracy would would look like. And the reason I say this is kind of well, I I read a paper recently by a guy that uh, that I interviewed for Mind Matters, which will go up this week. Uh, Clive Body, who's a um, like a, a business professor, and he so he deals deals with like organizational phenomena and like and corporate psychopathy and job satisfaction. And in one of his papers, he started out by saying, um, quoting some statistics that were done in the '90s. So this is kind of might be out of date, might be worse or better today, um, but apparently something like sixty percent of or, or more of employees, just in like you know corporations and, and businesses. Um, hate their managers. They think their managers are, of course, you know, like incompetent. And not only that, something like 70% of them would willingly take a pay cut if the manager was fired. So if they're, if the head of the corporation or the, or the business said, okay, we'll fire the manager, but you're, you're going to have to take a pay cut, they would, they would take it and they would be happy with it. That's how much they hate the, you know, middle management. So that of course creates an environment of distrust of, of and just being miserable at their job. It of course reduces their their enjoyment and and their their output, their their production like production capacity. They don't want to be there. They don't want to work. So they they become lazy. They start screwing up. And but if they have a good if they have a good boss, a good manager, they actually like their job. It's the that is the one like um, having a good boss, a good manager is according to at least this study is the primary contributor to job satisfaction. It's not actually what you're doing. It is right? huge. It's, yeah. So scale that up to the, to the politics. This gets back to that WEF woman quote. It's like the reason we don't, the reason people don't trust their elites is I'd argue for a similar reason. And kind of going back to what John said, they're a different tribe. We don't, we don't trust them. Not, not even just because they're a different tribe, but because the, because they don't, they're bad bosses. They, they don't give us any reason to to trust them to to feel like to feel like they're one of us and of course being a part of the which, same tribe is a big and, part of and which almost what else makes it worse um because you say like you know this paper was published back in the 1990s right so that was yeah. also the era in which you started seeing corporations adopt this kind of bring your whole self to work or a big corporate family employee of the month award kind of culture right where mm -hmm. um it was like oh workers need to feel valued so then instead of like in a fake having way. exactly they is all this fake shit which then it actually makes it harder to establish trust because like everyone just kind of rolls your eyes and it's like yeah whatever you learned how to do that in a management seminar like this is just a fucking act you're putting on right um mm -hmm. which to scale that up to the political culture as a whole uh is one of the problems because you know, in a representative democracy, you have this politician class who basically are professional liars and actors who are professional liars, quite literally. Um, and that, so it doesn't matter what they say. It's sort of like, ah, these are just words. Like you're just saying what you need to say in order to get power. And it, it sort of, it robs, it robs the word of all power, right? So, I mean, we went from a society where your word was your bond, you know, a society like oath, oath keepers where oath breaking was like a serious, uh, a, a serious failing um, to a society where the word is, is just valueless and, um, and there is no social trust. 
Sorry, Eric, your hand's been up for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with you, but I'm going to completely change directions. Yeah. Uh, completely. I'm going to uh, turn back to um, uh, Mark's point about a national side corn, which I, I, I don't want to stretch the national divorce metaphor too far. <laughs> but, you know, it might be taken a little bit far. But I think that the value... By the way, by the way, I just want to say uh, national side piece has to be the uh, the title of this episode. <laughs> well, I think it's like Agree. national side corn, but it, it suffers the same problems that all of those sorts of situations tend to have is that your main corn, I'm not main piece, I'm not sure, I don't have the uh, <laughs> dialogue for this or the words, but uh where does where does corn where does come from? By the way, I, don't, I never heard. I, that I don't know why it was shucking side corn, but that's where you never heard that one. Where you have lots of corn. <laughs> corn diversity folks. is very different where I'm from than it does apparently did everywhere they, else. Do they, they even do adultery in Iowa? I thought like a red a scarlet letter. <laughs> <not really>. Anyway, <laughs> but so the main problem with having you know your mistress that you run off with mark like you said and you're kind of your your second society that you're really part of is that your main society in our case the federal government tends to get really pissy and jealous about it and so it's a constant race of one-upsmanship like you know can you get more secretive can you be more detached and separate as oh oh but that's why that's why i said that's but let me just say that's why i said guma in particular because guma is a little bit different than the side piece Guma is something where, like a more traditional, again, Italian mistress, where the wife knows. The wife is aware, and the wife is okay with it as long as it doesn't interfere with certain elements of the family and And, the contributions. Yeah, I was going to get to that. I just wanted to interject with that, because in that model, the wife is cool with it. Kind of. She's... She accepts kind it. Of. And I want to I want to I want to use the word accept as opposed to just being cool with because there's two there's two aspects of this that I think make it not a long-term solution, right? Um on the first part, as from for most people, this starts getting to be a really high transaction cost process, right? Like you're just to stick with the side piece metaphor you know you're living two parallel lives basically and you're always like looking over your shoulder making sure you know oh did i make sure this is okay you know oh shit did i leave something laying around is there lipstick on my collar all this kind of silly shit right most people can't keep that up you know and you see the same thing now with people not many people have escaped to saying oh we use only bitcoin or cryptocurrency nothing we do is traceable by the government most people don't have a vpn you know it's all this kind of stuff that's relatively easy but most people can't be bothered they want to live somewhere where how they happen to live is the okay way to live as far as the government's concerned, right? They're trying to lower all these transaction costs. It takes weirdos like us to really kind of start pushing a little bit and say, oh, no, well, if I do this, they have no idea what, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, to take that kind of stuff real seriously. And as we're the also, government ramps that we're up, also, we're also raising the price. I mean, with, with uh, the kind of... Um adultery metaphor here implicit in all of this discussion so far is that we're we're the husband (laughs) and not the abused wife who is locked at home whose whose finances are wholly controlled by the controlling abusive spouse who also happens to be a mob boss who can have a snuffed out uh at a moment's notice owns the courts own like you know has dirty cops 
on the lookout can take your kids away. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's, that's very much the, best the way reality of the situation, right? Like, you know, it's like, it's like we're. <laughs> yeah, and, and exactly. And that's the thing. That's kind of what I wanted to get backwards with the Guma um, or whatever, the, the uh, acceptance of Sidecorn is that sooner or later, the other one changes their mind, right? They start wanting things, they start seeing too much conflict, and it becomes really difficult to do that and then it, when it comes in conflict it only goes one way right when the abusive well, we're, we're talking angry right, but we were talking about it. the the wife is the wife is abusive in this mob the wife I, is I, I, evil. One. the I wife one, is one, yeah the abusive one eventually decides that they don't want to put up with it anymore and since it's still a very one-sided power relationship in the sense that one side has a gun is going to kill you and the other one isn't it, it can't go on forever, right? Eventually, you get some sort of conflict. With individual human relationships, it sometimes works out better because they eventually get old and stop caring. You know, your dick falls off or whatever, and you no longer care about having an affair, or, you know, you just die. But all right, let's let's add another let's level, add another though, that keeps going for quite some time. Let's add another layer to this metaphor then that I started <laughs> and I'm not totally married to myself. <laughs> I was kind of a joke, but like, let's add one more layer. And let's say the wife is a drug addict. Let's say the wife is addicted to some very powerful things, who, have very self-destructive behaviors. Are we talking? Like the, the wife is the one that we're stepping out on. The, the wife's the government. Okay. The wife is the government. Is 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 GAE Global Homo? Whatever you want to say. The wife is the elites. The wife is the people. The, the 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 people who are uh, uh, who who pretend to rule over us and in many ways do. Um, and that this is a very sick um, spouse. This is a spouse that is mm -hmm. addicted to many self-destructive behaviors that is circling the drain in many ways. And but so, is also, by, and, but, it, but is also emotionally, like, also dangerous. Emotionally abusive and dangerous. Borderline, you know, and has been. Borderline personalities, schizophrenic, sociopathic. Exactly. It's been relentlessly undermining your self-esteem for like, you know, decades, you know, like. Look at, essentially, I'm describing two of my ex-girlfriends. So I have knowledge in this sphere. And so what I'm saying is, is that sociopath, self-destructive, drug addicted, someone who is like, who is, who is temperamental, who is dangerous, but who is also doing quite a bit of damage to themselves in the meantime. And so what I'm saying is the guma, the side corn, which is interesting, the side piece, whatever we want to call it, would be, in other words, freedom-loving peoples around the world who also maybe are fleeing from their own destructive, decaying, um, uh, uh, abusive, sociopathic partners. And that, like, if we could, instead of a national divorce, I guess what I'm saying is, like, rather running under the radar, well, the inevitable takes its course because inevitably... I think that, you know, these structures are going to fall in our lifetimes. I, I don't think there's much we can do about it. You know, we, we, we've tried to um, we've tried to help her. We've tried to save her. Uh, and we can't, I think, is what is the whole reason that this national divorce co topic comes up is because I well, think consider, so many of us. Consider for a moment, consider for a moment the fact that this conversation is happening with this group right now. Right. So, like, you know. Who do we like the, the the five of us on this call and the the two of the group who are not here, but they're you know in kind of the same socioeconomic educational class, you know, like we're all like you know 
fairly educated, were, you know, middle-aged, which would is supposed to be de-radicalized, you know, um, the conservative milk toast, middle of the road, uh, you know, like professional types. We're not backwoods Michigan militia types, right? Like, you know, talking about like the inevitable war with Zog or whatever, like you would have had back in the 1990s. Um, who would have been the people in the 90s who would have been having these kinds of conversations about, uh, you know, the necessity of pulling away from uh, the, the the global homo regime? They would have called it Zog back then, but whatever. Um, the fact that people like us are talking about this, right, I think is actually incredibly salient because we're not the only ones talking about it. This conversation is happening, like, across the world right now. Um, and that... I think, like, although we haven't started cheating yet, we are definitely emotionally cheating, <laughs> right? Um, which is kind of the first, the first step in that. Like, you know, we're like, we've kind of like severed that tie in our hearts towards this system entirely. You know, people who like us who were maybe a bit dissatisfied 20, 30 years ago would have been like, oh, well, but, you know, it can be fixed. Like, we just have to tweak this and change that and it'll all be good. Like, that's what the conversation would have been. And now it's just kind of like the the, the widespread sense is yeah, there's, there's nothing here that can be salvaged. It's done. It's over. Uh, it's we have to start again. But the other no, thing I was that say, analogy uh, with the you know spouse or the girlfriend who's like you know a, a narcissist and abusive and everything it's like say you have somebody you know the halo has been on them because you're in love and you're like oh you know they they wouldn't cheat on me people will tell you oh i saw so-and-so with you know and you, you know an idiot naive think no there's no way you know she's really in love when she says this thing she really means it and then you know five or six other guys are saying the same thing and at some point you know, the light bulbs come on and you, it's like the, you know, the, the people who are being cheated on or being played kind of compare notes a little bit and say, Oh, she, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, all kind of waking up at the same time. Like, you know, I guess what you see back in the day on those daytime talk shows where the, you know, the, the wine women would, you know, be on and the, kind of finally connect after realizing they were all dating the same guy or whatever, you know? Yeah. This is kind of the situation we're in now. And the side piece is the soft landing, you know? Okay. Sorry. Well, well, let me, let me just jump on, let me finish jumping on you and then we'll come back. (laughs) But, uh, and I was going to say, I was going to defer to uh, Harrison's clinical knowledge here, but I was always told that the uh, advice given to people in abusive relationships with, you know, like dangerous self-destructive people wasn't hey just ride it out until they get done killing themselves it was usually get the fuck out now <laughs> you know get out run go somewhere else let them kill themselves on their own time right so i so on the one hand i agree with you but i think that that's where to the extent the analogy holds i think that really is where it should take you other than the idea of saying if you can get out and they don't even know that you're out so they don't know to chase you which I think is kind of generally what we're getting at here. That's sort of the equivalent of the, you know, the, the side piece. If you can get out and they don't even know to be angry at you, great. But you got to get out, period. You know, getting out's the main focus. And if you can do it subtly so they don't realize you've left, so much the better. But you know, where, where are we going to go? You. 
Well, yeah, history, well, that would well be nice. that's the case with national divorces. Just say, look, we're not sharing the same country anymore. Or in that case, United States, we're not sharing the same federal government anymore. Yeah, but then they really? come and cut your throat in the middle of the night. Like that, that this is the problem. I mean, it, this happens in abusive relationships all the time. It's like, I'm finally leaving you. And guess yeah. what happens? Nine times out of 10, particularly if it's like a woman that's leaving a man, you're going to get some, you're going to get some bad situations that happen. If you best, just straight up say, I'm leaving you. Yeah, best case scenario is they leave you. This one, though, is drug addicted, is is completely insane, um, is, con- yeah, is in not, control of all the purse be, strings. You're, you're not going to be having an adult, uh, you know, divorce, right? Where you're exactly. Kind of, like it, it's kind of, kind of. And see, and this is the thing. This is where the uh, metaphor breaks down a little bit, is that, you know, if I were giving, if a state of Texas was going to ask me my advice about, hey, we're thinking of having a vote or a referendum on whether or not to leave the United States. My first piece of advice would be, cool, call up the National Guard on the, the day before. Have that shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In the case of a woman, I'd say, go somewhere else and make sure you have a gun that night. You know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I, right, so then with a woman. I mean, like, ugly, and it you might know. Ugly. But I think at the same time, it's going to get, it gets uglier the longer you stay with it. Ugliness is bound to happen. You know, the, the question is, are you going to be ugly on your terms and on your turf and thus maybe be able to diffuse the situation but by saying, if you try to force this, like if you try to force a remainder in the union, there's going to be bloodshed and we'll fight you over it. Or you could just let us go and no one has to get hurt. That's you know, a different decision than we agree that you have the right to hurt us as you see fit, when you see fit, and please just don't do it too much. You know, the other thing too there is like the, the money piece. I mean, it's almost like if you have this abusive spouse, they have this you know, inheritance that they got, or they got all this money and, or they control the money somehow. Um, in this case, it's, it's not that the blue tribe can really hurt the red tribe. It's like, they have the money to hire the, you know, p- the professional hitman to basically do it for them. You know? So it's like, once that money runs out and that's the thing, it's like, you, you know, you look at the amount of debt in the system now and see how, uh, you know, with the weaponization of the dollar against Russia, how that's kind of backfired hilariously in a way, you know, with the, the BRICS yeah. currency. So what, you're saying, you know, what's so, what, that so what you're saying, what you're saying is we need to start dating Russia. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I'm just, <laughs> naturally, I thought we were trying to get out saying, of the drunken abuse of the Our elites getting into a pissing match with, you know, Xi or Putin or whoever. And, bankrupting themselves and then no longer being able to pay for their control mechanism that's an awesome right. scenario i mean yeah. obviously it's gonna suck you it's know, like napoleon yeah. it's like a big time economic pain for everybody here you know because it's gonna be a huge change in our standard of living but it's kind of like the the least bad outcome out of a, a laundry list of terrible outcomes and the worst you know if we don't do anything it's like they just keep tightening the control you know mechanisms on us and, and get this the digital programmable currency from the central bank and they you know perfect their surveillance and get ai you know up to speed to surveil us and, and and all that and you know turn your bank account off if you say the wrong thing or whatever next thing you know i, I mean that's just the thing it's like a, it's like a slow march to slavery you know yeah fate there's, there's also a I wasn't in on the competence crisis conversation, but I did watch it afterwards. We, we can't, we can't, we can't um, 
pay no attention to the fact that these people are getting dumber, that these aristocrats are inbreeding, that it is getting worse and worse. I, I see like these I mean, madcap what, what, plans. What, but and it, this actually works perfectly well with your analogy to the uh, drug addict, right? Because, you know, what happens to exactly. someone who's all strung out on hard drugs over time? Their minds and bodies degenerate, right? Like, and yeah, this is kind of what it is. It's like they're strung out on smack. They're they're not nearly as hot as they were, you know, a generation ago. Um, like the the shines and come off. They're our barely elites are like Amber Heard, and then you see the video of that's why everybody finds out she shits on his <laughs> right. bed. And she's she's not, shitting the bed. You know, saying, they're breaking, oh, this is and she's this breaking her own really bank. Is. Yeah, they're breaking <laughs> their own banks. They're shitting the bed. You know, I, this is who I see, like as the spouse. It's not like the noble spouse. It is it is a monster of its own self-creation that is eating itself. And so, again, I'm going to try to get away. I'm going to try to well, untangle Mark, myself you, from this you know, metaphor. With your whole beat, I mean, is it, did they create themselves or is this like this egregore kind of thing where there's, you know, they're under the influence of something? Well, uh, that's what I think. I mean, like, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to pull you guys into, into all of that. Um, <laughs> Eric's here for God's sake. But but we I, are, I, we are, we are one of the original people talking about that. I just like to say we're my biblical metaphor is going to be way off. Here, but it's like we're Solomon and uh, they're Jezebel kind of thing, you know, introducing mm-hmm. double worship. <laughs> well, Maybe was, Lot and his wife? I don't know. What would yeah. it jump onto this metaphor too, like what Daniel is saying is that it's important to remember that at the national level, when we're talking about national divorce, the elites don't generate wealth. Right. They get it from the bottom up. Right. It's all the people that work and create things, pay their taxes into the federal government. That federal government then uses those taxes to buy other things. So, you know, if you say I'll just stick with Texas, Texas decides they're going to leave the union. They have one of the larger economies, you know, top 20 in the world. OK, yeah, you know, um, that money so, uh, directly, uh, that money so, goes away from the federal government and it stays with Texas. So a, couple, right, great. A, couple, a couple a couple months ago, a couple months ago, um, Simplicius, the thinker at Dark Futura, had a, an extended piece on exactly these kinds of dynamics, right? And that was one of the things he pointed out was that uh, it, the red states are actually the net revenue generators in terms of like, the real economy, and that's going to become yeah. You have to distinguish more, between the financial bullshit economy that's and uh, real producing tangible goods and services. Which, exactly, hundred percent. New York, a thousand percent paper money exactly exactly so like in the blue states you know their gdp looks huge because they have these very active sort of extractive uh fire um economies uh but the actual like you know like tangible wealth generation is happening in red states and um you know increasingly the entrepreneurial activity is happening in red states as well tesla moving to texas is one example of that uh so and then like as as the population sorting continues, uh, that's going to be even more the case because you're sort of like more ambitious, productive people are going to be moving to the red states. Um, thus, th- their economies will get stronger. The blue states are going to, they're, they're, see- they're already seeing their tax revenue decline. You know, real estate values are going down in city centers, which is also hurting tax revenues. Uh, and they've got all of these um, all of these very expensive social entitlement programs 
to sort of to the care and feeding of the urban underclass that they've nurtured over the decades uh, that they are increasingly unable to afford. Um, so the, the sort of scenario that he pointed to as, as a possible fracture point um, is that because the blue states have a lock on national politics, uh, like they're not giving up control of, of, of Washington anytime soon. Like they will, by hook or by crook, um, maintain that. Uh, very likely at a certain point, they're just going to be like, okay, well, we're just going to start pillaging the red states, you know, by like you know, the federal government just like appropriating what they have and, you know, sending it to the blue states. Well, this is going to really piss off the red states, right? You know, it's one thing to be talking about like ideology and child trannies and, you know, all of this fucking nonsense. Um, it's an entirely other thing when it's hitting you directly in the pocketbook and like they're taking money out of your communities and sending it to communities full of people you really don't like very much. Uh, and that, I think, would be, you made a pretty good case, I think. That, 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 that would be something that would ultimately motivate uh, populations and state governors to just say, you know what, we're out. Like, you know, um, but then that, of course, puts the blue states in a very awkward position because how are they gonna pay for all their stuff? And, you know, um, layered on top of that, these red state people are a bunch of infidels and heretics uh, because they are not doing the child tranny thing and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and now you set up the conditions for religious war because the only way for the blue states to to maintain their financial control of the red states is now at the point of a gun. Um, yeah. That, no, I'm yeah. glad that you put it that way in terms of the holy war because that's what I saw as well. I was just sort of like, what when I thought about like people that are proponents, because I did read a bunch of proponents of national divorce um, and also some proponents of civil war, by the way. And in both cases, I, first of all, in the first case of national divorce, I saw it devolving into some kind of violence anyway, because think about the enemy, the perfect enemy that you would be creating there. This, this blue state empire of, of people that have become detached from reason that have become detached from ethics, from, from morality, from, from even basic logic, and who are then, and then, are, and then are, are being burned. They're being burned. They're finally feeling the, the flame of um, debt that they've never felt before, you know, and like, and like the, the weight of all that debt suddenly coming down on them, I think would spark, um, you know, something like a, like a zombie apocalypse almost. And I'm, I'm only, I'm not really, kidding like i think that like you might see people that are just absolutely they're they've been trained to say those people have, took from you go get them you know and and it, it would be it would be bedlam um which is why well, I think, and, it's, like, and, it, and it's and to make it worse right so it's it's not just that they would have like a, a mercenary motive um which helps frankly uh yeah. but you know it's it's tied up with this like religious aspect of, you know, if we're right. fighting for gay rights or, you know, what, or, or racial justice or any, you know, you all know the thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, they would have this, and this has been the pattern with woke for all, from the beginning, right? It's like, you know, they have all of this like, rhetoric about like, you know, their high ideals, but ultimately it just comes down to money and power, right? It's an excuse for that. It's, it's a very effective combination. And this, you're 100% correct. This would supercharge. Um, 
and they, they would get, I think they would be pretty desperate. Uh, now, as Daniel pointed out, like in this scenario, it's likely they'd be a lot poorer, which would make it much more difficult for them to fund, uh, you know, a, a large military campaign. Like, would they really be able to maintain the logistical train necessary to keep the modern American war machine in the field? Um, yes, I'll tell same, you. I'll tell you. The same, but the same considerations would very likely apply to the breakaway red states. Uh, so, you know, Eric, one of the things that he pointed out in his introduction was, okay, the national debt. You know, like how do you decide like how that gets to be? No, I mean, you know, I'm a bit ruthless, so like my my, my sort of preference would be, fuck you, that's your problem. Um, you know, <laughs> we didn't want this. You deal with it, Washington, you know. Uh, but, you know, would the, interna- would, the, would the international markets be satisfied with that answer? Um, probably not, right? Uh, so, you know, they could have a hard time getting financing. And but they would be that, betting on but they would be betting on winners though, John. Like they, in so, any war that, so, that so, broke so out in this country, you, right? So who's so here's the thing, right? Who's so the it's gonna it would come down to a matter of who is backing them, right? Because uh, like in this scenario, the U.S. the entire or the remnants of the U.S. the rump United States and whatever breaks away from it, or you know, maybe it would be like, you know, two rival claimants both claiming to be the legitimate federal government. That could very easily happen as well. Um, they're all bankrupt, effectively. Uh, and so now you need foreign resources. Okay, so now, you know, it's going to be a matter of who is Brazil and China and Russia and maybe the European Union uh, going to throw their back? Maybe Iran. Maybe Iran, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of, Japan, you know, there's a lot of possibilities out there. Um, you know, once the U.S. disappears as a global hegemon, which happens pretty much the next day after the U.S. breaks up, um, then you have all of these regional powers popping up, popping up right? Some, some number of whom are probably going to uh, take some interest in, uh, you know, military happenings in the former continental United States. Um, is there interest in this side or that side winning? Is there interest in the conflict being prolonged as long as possible and being as destructive as possible? You know, I mean, if I was, you know, super Machiavellian, like, you'd be like, well, look what the Chinese do, actually, historically, right? What China's foreign policy historically has been to support the weaker side in any given border conflict amongst the barbarians until that side becomes the stronger side and then to divert their support to the now weaker side. And that way the, that conflict just simmers on and simmers on and simmers on and not, neither side is able to ever get particularly strong. And then no one can challenge uh, the middle kingdom. I see no reason why they wouldn't apply something quite similar. Um, I agree. You know? So but like, you know, it starts that's, that's out, exactly like, what I imagine. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, then, so then this was, this like national divorce situation rapidly collapses into just like a permanent conflict, you know, that could, that could go for decades and decades and decades and just absolutely. We become the forever war battlefields like Ukraine or like Afghanistan, except like, you know, it would, you know, and yeah. Yeah. We we sit on our own. uh, Some of these other countries, you know, that would, 
Puerto Ricanos is like which side red versus blue is most likely to interfere in the you know the the other nations of, abroad you know it's like the blues tribe you know the neocons have all gravitated towards there so it's like if there's two governments which one's most likely to right so but so so, so so dan like the way the, the way it would the way it would probably play out um if i had to, if i was a betting man uh because you're right the red state people are the ones who are right now isolationists just you know leave us the fuck alone we don't want this stupid empire anymore we want to focus on our own problems and it's the, you know the neocons are they're much, pretty much on the blue side uh so you know if i were china and we were to end up in the situation i would be throwing my financial support and my military support and whatever behind the red states and but i would only do that you know until the red states were doing pretty well for themselves right. and right and then you know would start you know helping out the blue states and you know maybe you're not maybe maybe you're even funding both sides at the same time right you know you could be like you know, helping one side above board and then like, you know, using back channels to send resources to the other side. You know, the global financial forces have done this. I mean, like many times in the past, you know, <laughs> both of the great wars of the 20th century um, saw the financial markets simultaneously supply, supplying and, uh, you know, both sides of the conflict. Um, you know, IBM manufacturing machinery for the Germans or the Coca-Cola Corporation spinning off uh, Fanta to uh, to uh, help. I mean, you have this kind of stuff happening all the time. So if I could offer a little bit more optimistic view on this, though, um, I think. I think the argument that it would go directly to full out civil war is possibly a little overstated. Um, Always overly pessimistic, I think. Um, one, there's a couple of things the United States has in its favor for avoiding that that a lot of other places around the world don't. Um, one, even with the red-blue divide, we have a much more consistent culture and lack of, uh, I guess you would say, historical grievances than almost everywhere else on Earth, right? Like, I talk shit about Californians all the time. But if I meet one in a bar, I'm not going to sneak out and beat him up later. I don't know, man. A lot of lot, lot of Southern boys I've talked to have some have some pretty deep seated grievances, and but they still likewise, don't do that much. Like, like, I, I, like, I know like, quite a few too who like, likewise, talk a lot about how much they hate them, but they don't actually act on it. Very, very likewise, hard. likewise, your African Americans vis-a-vis you know, yeah, white well, Americans. exactly, and that and that there's a small portion That's gonna be in a some big parts issue. of the cities that are really bad about that. Right. I totally agree with that. But I think it's a I think it's a very small portion compared to places like uh, like Kosovo and, you know, like the the former Balkans, where it's like these people have hated each other and been fighting over things. Oh, yeah. No, it's great, 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 20 years talking ago. to Balkanoids is kind of hilarious. You know, the Serbs, yeah, Kosovars are all dogs, and then you talk yeah, about Kosovars yeah. like Serbs are all fucking Nazis. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I know, think, they really hate each other. Yeah, and I think you know during the George George Floyd riots, like uh, I mean, I mean, so I was on uh, under my as a, a personal account, like in social media at that time, and uh, you know, interacted with some people that. I was surprised to see how many people you couldn't have even a, a nuanced conversation with about it. Not just that, but people that were like celebrating the prospect of racial violence 
you know, and not just black people. I mean, white people that are, you know, allies or whatever, but like people that, that celebrate it as if this is going to be a great thing. And I'm, you know, trying to push back like, hey, you know, I don't think you realize what the genie that you're letting out of the bottle when you do this. And especially, I mean, just as a tactical strategic thing, even if you feel like it's justified, if you're black, you're 13% of the population advocating, which unfortunately too many prominent people in the politically black and I, you got to distinguish that. Be, it's not just black. It's like there's a political identity around it. Too many people in that camp are comfortable and have, you know, said things kind of indicating a support for and hope for that type of violence to to happen, you know, to inflame yeah. that type of grievance and all that. I was, and it's like it's, your 13% of the population like was, is not a winning strategy, was, especially. Well, and that, that was the thing. Yeah. And that's, and that was my second point, Daniel, though, is that particularly especially with the George, George Floyd riots, when you saw that sort of violence happening, it wasn't that those folks were driving out into the countryside and burning down farms, right? They were going into, and I, I saw this directly in Minneapolis because I lived right outside of it. They, would, they were going into Minneapolis and they were burning down, one, their own neighborhoods, and two, other minority neighborhoods. Like there was a lot of focusing on things like, uh, you know, Hispanic and Korean beauty salons. And, um, you know, even a lot of people you know, at the time or anyways, this seems actually pretty racial, like very racially motivated in terms of like blacks were going after other minorities and other minorities were going after blacks. And so I think part of this is that, you know, this racial war thing, it isn't these like real clear camps. It's people in the cities hate the other people around them in the cities. And they're the ones that are going after it. None of them are thinking, you know, we've got to drive out to the boonies and set a few barns on fire. Well, this is this this actually to go back to the Balkans analogy, because um, I've there, I've read people who have actually made a direct comparison of the U.S. to the pre-war Balkan uh, states mm-hmm. um, because of uh, and not just the U.S., but sort of like the West more more broadly. Shit. And look what happened in France last week. Uh, you know, we've spent the last couple generations especially the last like 10 15 20 years really packing the diversity into our urban centers um and pretty much every city in every western country right now is this patchwork of ethnic ghettos and they all hate each other right you know i mean like when people talk about black versus white that's a thing but you know somali versus african-american definitely a thing in like you know michigan for example um or is it minnesota uh minnesota, but like yeah. i mean in minnesota yeah the, the, right or like you know down in like the the southern states it's like you know black versus uh hispanic for example um and then of course there's like the asians who like you know don't go looking for trouble as a rule but uh we all remember the rooftop koreans from rodney king um so like the point okay, is, I don't think that. Oh yeah, but like if, most if, most if, people if, if don't stuff, go. If if, yeah. if stuff were to kick off like this, right? Um, you probably would not necessarily end up with like sort of eighteen sixty five type civil war where you have like you know two well defined you know states with borders and uniformed militaries and stuff it could be far 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 more chaotic than that yeah and, well, and, and that, not a, yeah and that was that was and, my larger point is that the united states particularly united states is different in other places i'm sure but united states most of the dysfunction that people are trying to get away from are centered on the cities 
right? So if Texas decides they want to leave the union, Chicagoans might be, oh, this is horrible. Everybody in the rest of Illinois is going to go, lucky bastards, I want to do that, right? They're, they're, they see themselves a lot closer. And the reason that's important is, is that if the rest of the United States wants to go to war on Texas to make sure they can't leave, a lot of their population is going to go, no, why are we doing that? We shouldn't kill them. Let them leave. They're all right. Well, this but actually touches I want on to leave too. These are good guys. You know, these are more like us. They don't. It isn't like you know, back in the this, day, where all Missourians are bastards, and we want to you know, fuck Missouri. Everybody hates them. This this, 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 this touches on wall around the cities instead of this, like, this, 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 order. You know, this is this, this, this is clearly not going to. This is not going to stop today. We we clearly have more to say. We've we've gone for quite a quite a while. I just want to throw, yeah. throw one more thing out there. It's one thing we didn't we didn't touch on at all, um, but which is I think kind of emerges out of the point that Eric was making uh, is um, internal secession, right? So you I mean we, we've already seen uh, several cases that I'm aware of uh, in the U.S. where you have um, individual counties or small groups of counties who are actively trying to leave their state and just join a different state right um which uh, obviously like you know the the states that are they're trying to leave don't want to let them leave washington is not particularly interested in smoothing that because they recognize that would be in every single case a diminution of blue state power uh but it's you know certainly something that you know like, how exactly do you prevent that, right? So remember, like, you know, for instance, like, um, a few years ago, Virginia, under the previous governor, was going to roll out some very restrictive firearms legislation that, you know, were arguably a violation of the Second Amendment. And um, a bunch of the counties were like, we don't like this very much. And then West Virginia was like, hey, if you want to join us, like, <laughs> you know, our doors are open, right? Yeah. So then, yeah, like... Right. So then, you know, this sets up like interesting possibility because, you know, if counties decide to start doing that, um, like, you know, a, a lot of a lot of these discussions, like they, they often founder on sort of questions of process, like, like, oh, like the legislature would never allow it to happen. You know, the courts would never allow it to happen. But Power doesn't always work that way. You know, if the, if, the, if, if the counties themselves are like, we're leaving, fuck you, fight me. And, you know, the other state is like, we're happy to have you here. Then like, what, do you end up with like shootouts between, you know, various like state national guards and, you know, like, uh, like standoffs between state patrols? Like, I mean, um, you know. Well, when you have one side that that's like they're modeling said, their ethos is, you know, liberation from any bonds that you haven't consciously chosen, you know, as you see with the pride bullshit, like, uh, you know, how does it, then how do they do that when there's, you know, counties of people saying, hey, we don't want to be a part of this thing. And they're like, no, you have to, even if you consciously choose otherwise, we're not going to allow you to be liberated from that. It's just, you know, it, not to say that logical contradiction has ever stopped the blue tribe before but it just undermines any legitimacy they may have in the eyes of yeah. the people they're trying to govern and that's a big thing when people see the government as an occupation and occupational force and not having legitimacy which is something yeah, this that's just is, gonna increase this is this is, well, this I, is where social contract theory does become like relevant right because i mean like I, I, even in like 
even like the era of like divine right of kings, like you did at the king did actually need like the consent of the people, at least insofar as like he is legitimately the king. And you know, he needed to have some level of popularity. Um, but yeah, I, Mark, we're, you're trying to wrap this stuff up, aren't you? <laughs> I was trying, I wanted to wrap it up very quickly, and I and I and I appreciate uh, everything that everyone was saying. Uh, and I think a lot of it, again, I'm sounding like a fanboy here, but everyone read Discourse on Voluntary Servitude, written by Etienne Dalaposi in 1571. Uh, he, he he's the first substacker in some ways. And, <laughs> and, and I'll leave you with this quote from the piece. I, I, I was struggling to find one that would wrap it up, but maybe we could think about this if we decide to extend this conversation into the future. And the quote is this, resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight and break in pieces. Boom. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. Hope to see you next week on the Tonic 7. Cheers. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Later. Later.